Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Every now and again, we'll devote an episode of the show to a specific part of our region, shining an audio spotlight on places like Silver Spring, Maryland, D.C.'s Shaw neighborhood, or Capitol Hill. This time around, we're crossing the Potomac to Virginia to spend time in the Old Dominion's most populous county and one of its wealthiest jurisdictions. It's home to the CIA, as well as Freddie Mac and defense contractor Northrop Grumman. It's Fairfax County. And over the next hour, we'll look at the past, present, and future of the area and visit some of the places where its 1.1 million residents live, work, and play. Fairfax County got its official start in 1742. But long before that, the area was inhabited by an Algonquin-speaking group known as the Dogue. By 1670, Virginian colonists had driven the Dogue into Maryland. And less than 200 years later, a new community emerged, what is now the oldest historically African-American enclave in Fairfax County. It's called Gum Springs, and it was formally established in 1833 by former slaves. These days, Gum Springs' population is much more ethnically diverse than in generations past. But descendants of Gum Springs' original residents remain. And as Lauren Landau tells us, they're working to preserve the story of this place their families have called home for some 180 years. When you enter the Gum Springs Community Center, hang a right and walk down the hallway. You'll reach a door that looks like it might lead to an office, but inside you'll find historic artifacts, china plates in blue and white, fading photographs, figurines of buffalo soldiers wearing yellow scarves, a poster proclaiming the sale of eight likely Negroes. You might also see Ronald Chase. He's the president and founder of the Gum Springs Museum. This is my great-grandmother. She was a slave as a child, and she died fairly young. My grandmother told me that she died cooking breakfast. Chase is a lifelong resident of Gum Springs, just like his parents, their parents, and their parents before them. His sister, Josephine Evans, was born, raised, and educated here, too. All of these school teachers here that are pictured here, taught, I was taught by every last one of them. Ms. Roscoe, Ms. Mrs. Jones... Mrs. Ms. Brown, Ms. Gray, Ms. Branch, and Mr. Moon was the principal. When visitors want to learn about Gum Springs, the oldest historically African-American town in Fairfax County, it's Chase's job to school them on not just decades, but centuries of history. Gum Springs is truly an amazing place. It has its origins before the Civil War and truly almost back to the beginning of our nation. The town's name came from the lips of none other than George Washington. Chase says the revolutionary leader used to go fox hunting in the woods here and knew about the area's many gum trees and freshwater springs. But that's not the town's only connection to our first president. The black gentleman who started it as a black community has uh, links to George Washington. He is, he is said to be the son of George Washington by slave. Mount Vernon doesn't dispute that he is a Washington. They say he's a Washington, but I think they believe that he is Bushrod Washington's son, uh, the nephew of George Washington. And um, any DNA testing, they would have to, they would have to have some element of West Ford himself. The man in question, West Ford, was born a slave in 1784 in Westmoreland County. Years later, Bushrod Washington gifted a plot of land to Ford, by then an adult and a free man. The land that was given to Ford was adjacent to Gum Springs two years after he had 
was given the land, he sold his land and purchased Gum Springs. The father of four settled in Gum Springs. Others soon followed. He was the largest black landowner of the time, and they probably just started coming to him asking, well, it would it be all right if I, if I built a home on the property? He started allowing people to build and live on the property. By the time Samuel K. Taylor came to Gum Springs, a runaway slave that started Bethlehem Baptist Church, it was 1863, and there were what was documented. There were 12 homes in Gum Springs. So that's, that's a, a, a black enclave. That's a black town developing. The church became a huge fixture in the community. They didn't have a physical building, but they would have the uh, services at different uh, homes uh, each, each week. And so it wasn't until after the uh, close of the Civil War that they were able to build a church from um, um, uh, lumber from a union uh, stable that was being dismantled. The Bethlehem Baptist Church that you can visit today is the congregation's third home. Chase's sister, Josephine Evans, says the church's role in the community was huge. People either attended services at Bethlehem Baptist or at Woodlawn United Methodist Church. At that time, what did they have? So I think their faith was what sort of kept them together. The residents of Gum Springs also had each other. These are the things that we have to hold on to, to show the world, to to enable the American psyche and the American public to see. This is what it took for us to survive. This is part of the American story. This is part of the African-American story. He says it's important for newcomers to take an interest in protecting the town that they share and in preserving and knowing its history. I'm Lauren Landau. You can't talk about Fairfax County's history without talking about population growth. A century ago, Fairfax County was a relatively quiet place. But in the 1940s, as the federal government began to grow and people started spending more time in their cars, more and more Washingtonians began looking to Fairfax County as a place to live. Between 1930 and 1950, the population pretty much quadrupled, growing from 25,000 people to just under 100,000. By 1970, it had quadrupled again, with a population of more than 454,000 people. And one of the families dedicated to giving these people a place to live was the Georgilis family. Over the past half century, their development company has played a role in building projects not just in Fairfax, but across the country. Natalie Villacorta is a native of Fairfax County, and she went back to meet members of the Georgilis family and bring us their story. 6636 Bryn's Place in McLean looks like many other 1960s-era split-level brick houses. It's the kind of home that's increasingly being torn down in favor of bigger, fancier houses. But this is where an empire began. This is where we, you know, my grandfather and my uncles laid the foundation for the exciting things that we were able to do after. And your father. And my father. That's Aaron and Ted Georgilis. Ted's father and Aaron's grandfather, Colonel John Georgilis, founded the Georgilis Group in 1964. The the funniest story that I have about my grandfather and starting uh, the business was when he was explaining to his co-workers at the Pentagon that he was building houses. 
they would give him a hard time because he was building houses way, way out in McLean, out in the sticks. Three of John's four sons went into the family business. Ted says the first houses his father built are now worth more than anyone could have imagined a half century ago. These are probably around eight or nine hundred thousand dollar houses now, compared to they were sold for thirty nine thousand, and this one was worth about forty thousand at the time. A lot changes in fifty years. Ted is now the CEO, and Aaron is a partner in the Georgilis Group. The company has gone from building modest homes throughout McLean to commercial real estate all over the world. Their next big project making over Tyson's Corner into a place where people can live and play, not just work. The Georgeless Group is overseeing the Tyson's Demonstration Project. It's a 28-acre development of apartments, restaurants, and shops around the Spring Hill Metro Station on the Silver Line. We're going to continue to grow, which we, we have been. We need to grow smart. We need, so we, need, we need to really buy into the whole smart growth concept and grow around, around Metro. Fairfax County has already changed a lot since the Georgilis group got started. Back when Aaron was a kid, Tyson's Corner was a field where he used to ride a dirt bike. We decided to take a road trip through the county to see vestiges of the past and the family's role in developing the Fairfax of today. Uh, right now, we're looking at a couple of things that we accomplished within that, that uh, uh, new plan. On Old Dominion Drive, we passed a townhouse development they built in the 80s, a pizza place transformed from an old Texaco station, a shopping center that's home to a hair salon and ethnic restaurants. As we emerge from downtown and head west, we pass more and more pieces of land on which houses have been bulldozed and bigger ones are being built. I've seen a lot of the older product torn down and made, uh, way made for much newer, larger product. Uh, at, the same, uh, at the same time, there's still a lot of old product that's still standing. We turn off Old Dominion to stop by the third house that John built. Here, right, 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 right. Oh, we're going to take a look at Bill Wood. That's been a while since I've been over here. This is, uh, these are my streets. These this, are, this, is the, this is your hood. This is my hood. Well, the third house my, my father built, and I was still in college at the time, uh, that was uh, the house that went for $105,000. So that was, that was a big moneymaker for her. That was a big number, though, back then. <laughs> That's crazy how much the real estate has prices have changed. Yeah, it's made geniuses out of many of us. From there, we drive by several housing subdivisions they built and then cruise onto Tycho Road in Tyson's Corner. We're right next to the Silver Line Spring Hill Metro stop. Now it's a bunch of car dealerships, but the company promises in 20 years, people will be strolling this neighborhood's streets. Right now, that's an industrial park that's quickly transforming into a really wonderful place to be. You know, if you think about, if you took you know, Reston and Georgetown and Arlington and mashed them together, but had more people living there, had higher buildings uh, and more significant retail and cool restaurants to be at, uh, I think that's what you'd end up with, uh, a Reston on steroids, if you will. We climb back into the car and head to the Georgilis Group offices just down the street. Before we say goodbye, I asked Ted what his dad would think of Tyson's development. Uh, he would be as uh, about as happy and proud as you could possibly be as a parent, because uh, he's uh, uh, proud of himself too. Because he started all this. I mean, who knows what we'd have been doing if he hadn't uh, built those first two houses in McLean 50 years ago? Ted and Aaron don't know if their kids will play a role in the family business, but they do know their legacy will endure long after they're gone, and the structures they've built here over the past half century. I'm Natalie Villacorta.
After the break... It's our obligation to counter the conflict and divisiveness that is out there in the world. Muslims and Jews come together at a synagogue in Reston. That and more as Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're touring Fairfax County, Virginia, one of the largest counties in the nation and one that's attracting more and more cultures from around the world. This next story is about two of those cultures coming together in a rather unexpected way. Visit a Reform Jewish synagogue at the end of the week, and you may hear the strains of a Friday evening Shabbat service. Maybe a Saturday morning bar bat mitzvah. Or perhaps the sounds of Havdalah as congregants bid farewell to the Sabbath on a Saturday night. But visit Northern Virginia Hebrew Congregation on a Friday afternoon and you'll hear this. Muslim prayers, sung by men and women in stocking feet as they stand, sit, and prostrate themselves on sheets spread across the synagogue's multi-purpose hall. Uh, we probably have, at each prayer, 250 to 300. I, I, li- I like my members to listen to those numbers and to emulate that when they come to services. <laughs> I just want to put that on the record there. <laughs> that, respectively, was Rizwan Jaka and Rabbi Michael Holzman. Rabbi Holzman leads NVHC's Jewish congregation here in Reston. Jaka is a leader at Adams, also known as... The Old Delisaria Muslim Society. Since forming in 1983, Adams claims to have become one of the largest Muslim communities in the Washington in D.C. area and in the country. Its main campus is in Sterling, Virginia, but it's sprouted a number of satellite locations in churches, hotels, and yes, the multi-purpose hall of Northern Virginia Hebrew Congregation, where it conducts two Friday afternoon services and holds meals during the holy month of Ramadan. Rizwan Jaka says Adam's first rest in location was inside a church until that church went under construction. And at the time, uh, Rabbi uh, Nosinchuk, uh, Rabbi Michael's uh, predecessor, he heard about that we were looking for a place. He was like, why don't you come here to the synagogue? And we were like, really? We were like, that's awesome. Moving from a church to a synagogue, we complete the Abrahamic uh, circle. Adams moved to NVHC in 2008. But as Rizwan Jaka and Rabbi Holzman explain, seeds for the partnership were sown in the mid-1990s. Imam Muhammad Majid, our executive religious director, or the chief imam of Adams, him and Rabbi Rosalind Gold, the rabbi emeritus of uh, the Northern Virginia Hebrew Congregation, uh, started uh, dialoguing together more from a clergy kind of dialogue, kind of leadership engagement and fellowship in this area. Which is relatively early on a national level for Muslim-Jewish dialogue to be happening in the United States. It didn't really start to happen more commonly until after 9-11, in which case you know, both communities thought more deliberately about the need for more dialogue. And that dialogue is definitely happening at Adams and NVHC. 
They've had youth exchanges and, Rabbi Holzman notes, leadership exchanges. We have a weekly Torah study here every Shabbat morning. But once a year we invite Imam Majid or Imam Rafa to come and speak here. And the attendance doubles, right? So um, people are very eager to hear the Muslim perspective on our sacred text. The same thing happens when Rabbi Holzman visits Adams, says Rizwan Jaka. You taught the class, and I think there were about three, 400 people that were jam-packed <laughs> to, uh, to listen to Rabbi Michael. And this mutual respect continues during tricky times. Rabbi Holzman recalls several of his Adams visits coinciding with flare-ups of violence in Israel and the Gaza Strip. I believe it was this past November, and here I am going to the mosque, and a couple of young Palestinian men approached me at the mosque to have an informal conversation about what was happening in Israel. And the way in which they did it was so respectful and so so, much, so filled with honor on an issue that we, uh, we clearly disagree. But they, all, they have the courage to, to open up and, and have that conversation. Likewise, says Rizwan Jaka, when a member of Northern Virginia Hebrew Congregation approached with questions. Uh, very respectful. Uh, we actually sat down, ate lunch together, and, and we talked. Now, Jaka says, members of Adams have grown fond of praying at NVHC. People were like, we like going to the synagogue. It's so peaceful, so calm. You know, so I think that it's, it's opened up new horizons for people. And Rabbi Holzman says NVHC congregants regard and respect Adams members as a regular fixture. They have a mountain of prayer rugs that they store here. And, you know, here we have different groups of the synagogue who are getting things out of the closet. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's behind the Muslim prayer rugs, you know. And that's just part of the, the lingua of the congregation. This idea of a shared humanity is common in Judaism, he says. When we say in the Torah that we're created in the image of God, that's the piece of God that connects all of us, that humanity. And, says Rizwan Jaka, it's a major theme in Islam, too. You know, God tells us in the Holy Quran that he's created us as nations and tribes so that we may get to know one another. God could have created us the same. He created us in different on purpose. And so I think that it's uh, incumbent upon all of us, you know, as people of faith or people of no faith, to get to know each other. And these two communities in this corner of northern Virginia hope they'll continue to get to know each other for years to come. Latest statistics show more than a third of Fairfax County's one million-plus residents hail from outside the United States. And of all the elementary students enrolled in Fairfax County public schools, nearly half of them speak a language other than English at home. At last count, these languages numbered more than 170, the most widely used being Spanish, Arabic, Vietnamese, Mandarin Chinese, and Korean. Those last three languages shouldn't be too surprising, given that Asians are among the fastest-growing subgroups in Fairfax County. In 1990, they made up 8% of the population. By 2013, it was 18%. Virginia reporter Michael Pope brings us this look at what's drawing Asians, Koreans in particular, to this part of Northern Virginia. That's Chang Yul Lee, a reporter for the Korea Times in Annandale. He's putting together the final draft for today's edition, one of three daily Korean-language newspapers in Fairfax County. Yes, there are three daily Korean newspapers, plus several more weekly newspapers, a cable television channel, and a Korean radio station, all in Fairfax County. I think Korean people love, you know, news. Most Koreans uh, get information 
uh, from daily newspaper. As a group, the newspapers and broadcasters are known informally as the Korean media. We work some way together. We move together. So, you know, uh, whenever there uh, Korean issues comes up, you know, Korean media move together. Take an issue like textbooks. Last year, the Korean media pressed members of the Virginia General Assembly to make sure public school textbooks referred to the body of water bordering Korea and Japan as the East Sea, as well as the Sea of Japan. That's a longstanding international controversy between the countries. Japanese saying that they call that Japan Sea or Japanese Sea. And uh, we we saying that's not Japanese Sea. They were called uh, East Sea before. No, by historically. So the Korean media mm-hmm. took a position on this, which is it's called Isishi, not Sea of Japan. And what happened as a result of that? Result of that, you know, a lot of politicians actually, you know, sided with the Korean people. Census figures show the Asian population growing by leaps and bounds in Fairfax County. That's especially true on the county's western edge and an area known as the Sully District. That part of the county has seen a 47% increase in the Asian population since 2010, but it's not the only part of Fairfax County with a thriving Asian community. Further to the east, in Annandale, you'll find an area many Koreans call Koreatown. Koreatown, I believe, was established in, in Annandale maybe around 19, uh, early 1970s. That's David Han, who runs a travel agency okay. in Koreatown, in the same building as the Korea Times. A lot of our residents do not live here, only work here. Uh, it's because um, the school that the Koreans are really interested in, the good schools, are located in the western part of Fairfax County. Census figures show about 10,000 Koreans live in the Sully District. That's the largest concentration of Asian people anywhere in Fairfax County. When a Korean person uh, wants to uh, find a home, first thing they look at is the SAT score of their proper uh, school, uh, high schools. Fairfax County has the highest number of Asians in Virginia. Right now, Asians make up about 17.5% of the county's population. But Annie Roram at the University of Virginia's Weldon Cooper Center for Public Service says that's expected to grow. We project at the Cooper Center that that percentage of residents will be 20% in 2020, 22.3% in 2030, and 24.4% in 2040. It's a trend that's also changing the face of Virginia. More than two-thirds of Virginia's Asian residents are U.S. citizens. Almost half were born outside the U.S. and naturalized. We should be aware that this is not simply due to fertility, but also due to migration. Inside Fairfax County, Asian populations tend to cluster in different places. Indians have the highest population in the Hunter Mill District. Chinese tend to be located in the Providence District. Vietnamese people often choose to live in the Mason District, ironically the home of Koreatown. What you'll see is you'll see often pockets. So you might see a couple uh, Korean families move out to a certain area and they'll bring others with them. That's Kahan Dillon, an American of Asian descent who lives in Mount Vernon. He's on his way to Yi Chan, a 24-hour Korean barbecue in Annandale. He normally orders a kind of seared steak known as bulgogi. It's amazing to see a place like this, the size being so just overwhelmed with business, really is. Opinions are divided about why Koreans keep coming to Fairfax County. Many say it's the schools. Some say it's the influence of the county's thriving churches or the proximity to an international airport. Others say it's a self-fulfilling prophecy now that Fairfax County is a place where Koreans can get a driver's license and vote in their native tongue. I'm Michael Pope. 
We have an interactive map with more information about where Asian communities in Fairfax County live and how their numbers have grown. Find it on our website, metroconnection.org. Fairfax County is one of the wealthiest counties in the nation. The U.S. Census Bureau reports the median household income is more than $110,000 a year. And some of the prime engines of all this prosperity? Federal agencies and the contractors they employ. But sequestration is leading the feds to cut spending, particularly on the office space they once used. John Hines brings us a look at how this trend is affecting Fairfax County's finances and its plans for the future. Before we can get to the future, we have to spend some time in the present, specifically at a big, shiny, empty office building on the side of Interstate 395 in the Alexandria section of Fairfax County. To commercial realtor Tom Cafferty, this building says a lot about how reductions in government spending are affecting Fairfax County. We're at 5290 Shawnee Road in the I-395 corridor submarket of Fairfax County. Indeed, it's one of the most challenged submarkets in all of Fairfax County with the impact of the Department of Defense cutback, sequestration, and our heavy reliance on the government. Not long ago, more than 650 people worked here. But regrettably, 5290 Shawnee Road was completely vacated by Lockheed Martin in October 2014, and substantial portions of the adjoining building, over 75% were vacated by Lockheed as far back as 2012. So we've seen a steady reduction, all tied into DOD, sequestration, federal government cutbacks. Just before Lockheed Martin left this office park, The Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, moved out of another building just across I-395. We drive to that site, where for about 20 years, the SEC housed its financial database system, EDGAR. That stands for Electronic Data Retrieval Archive System. It's one of the most active websites in the Internet economy. And Cafferty says it was housed in this part of Fairfax County until just a couple years ago. In 2010... The majority in Congress shifted, and the SEC, after three congressional hearings, was mandated to not only disband its real estate program, but to downsize significantly their real estate occupancy nationwide. The loss of the Edgar database from Fairfax County meant a cut of more than 700 jobs, Cafferty says, and it also meant a reduction in county tax revenue. Vacancy rate today in this section of Fairfax County? 25 to 30 percent. There were times in my 40-year career where the vacancies were as low as 5 percent. We as owners were realizing 5, 8, 10 percent annual rent increases. Since 2010, we have seen 30 to 40 percent rent decreases. That translates into lower real estate taxes. Cafferty says some places are doing better, like Tyson's and Reston. But overall, he says this slowdown is new for Fairfax County. In my 40-year career, Fairfax County's never seen these kind of vacancy rates, and more importantly, persist since 2011. David Versell of George Mason University's Center for Regional Analysis says what Cafferty is describing is a fundamental shift in the Fairfax economy. Its historical development up until now was first filling up with residents, people who lived in Fairfax County and commuted elsewhere, mostly Washington, D.C. Beginning in around the 1970s, the county 
enacted a strategy to grow its own employment base as a means of building up its tax base and taking some of the pressure off of its residents. So from that point forward, Fairfax County emerged as one of the leading employment centers in the region, developing tens of millions of square feet of office space, attracting high-wage jobs, many of which were from government contractors. And now Fairfax County is having to pivot yet again. It just adopted an economic development plan that begins with an acknowledgement that residential taxpayers are shouldering more of the budgetary burden as the commercial office market has gotten weaker. One recommendation of the plan is to move away from government-dependent contracting and into areas like biomedical research and cybersecurity. Jerry Gordon is president and CEO of the Fairfax County Economic Development Authority. We have two uh, future industries that are still in their somewhat nascent stages that will be great generators of employment and wealth in this community for many years to come. Um, The two industries both lie at, at the intersection of information technology, which is our great strength. And uh, the obvious one is cybersecurity. The the more recent um, addition to that is translational medicine. Translational medicine is basically the idea of taking research innovations and translating them into diagnostic tools and procedures for patients. Gordon says Innova Health Systems is bringing a translational medicine research facility to an old ExxonMobil office park a few miles from Tyson's Corner. On that campus, they will do all this research as well as spin off the the discoveries into commercializable products. Brian Hayes, the project director of that new Innova facility, meets me across the street from the site where it'll eventually be located. He says the facility will focus on cutting-edge genomic research and personalized medicine. He expects it to generate 2,100 jobs to start, with more to come later. It is part of our intent to create an economic environment where we spin off uh, or create additional uh, activities which may or may not take place on the campus itself. So I think 2,100 is a very low number. Hayes says that some studies have suggested those 2,100 jobs will be just the tip of the iceberg. I do think it's very significant to the Fairfax economy. This is a substantial investment that we are making in biotech, medtech research. Hayes expects that investment to pay off in the not-too-distant future. Workers are slated to begin at the new facility soon, and Fairfax County officials are hopeful this may be the beginning of a new economy for their fast-changing community. I'm John Hines. In a minute, how decades of rapid growth in Fairfax County have affected the environment. You know, these plants won't stop growing until some very powerful force stops them. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Today, we're taking you on a tour of Virginia's Fairfax County. Our next story is about something many living in and passing through the county know all too well. Transportation woes. Several major highways run through Fairfax County, including I-95, I-395, I-495, and I-66. And that last one is one of the most congested roads in our region, which is why the Virginia Department of Transportation, or VDOT, has a plan to transform I-66. And that's what we'll explore today as we bring back our transportation segment, 
from A to B. VDOT's plan includes adding toll lanes and using the revenue to improve transit, biking, and walking options in Fairfax County. But some legislators worry VDOT is moving too fast, like Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly. Transportation reporter Martin DeCaro recently met with Connolly to hear his concerns with the state's plan. Congressman Connolly, you and three other members of the Northern Virginia delegation recently sent a letter to Virginia's Transportation Secretary, Aubrey Lane, expressing some concerns about the state's plan to fix 66 inside the Beltway. Of course, there are plans for outside the Beltway, too. Let's stick with inside first. What are your concerns? First of all, the state is uh, proposing virtually no improvements inside the Beltway except adding tolls. In addition, they want to change HOV from 2 to 3, and they want to accelerate the, the mandate so that instead of waiting till 2020 to do that, as the plan currently calls for, they actually want to do it in 2017, less than two years from now. I believe that will have horrific effects on commuting patterns, will put a very heavy burden on people who will, you know, need to use I-66. I believe that you will come to a funnel at the Arlington border uh, where you now face, you will now face tolls, and what will happen is a lot of toll avoidance. So you will see traffic go from 66 onto the ancillary roads, 29 and 50 particularly, creating enormous gridlock on those roads and really affecting neighborhoods. So you don't believe commuters have an appetite to pay tolls for a faster ride into Washington or wherever they're going? Well, there'll be some winners and some losers. Um, if, you're a, if you're an SOV, a single occupancy vehicle, and you're willing to pay a toll every day, um, you benefit because you'll be able to use 66 in rush hour where currently you, you need a companion uh, to qualify for utilization in peak hours. But I am really worried about the unforeseen effect. We know toll avoidance is real. I also believe that a whole bunch of people culturally who have uh, complied with HOV2 are now going to be left out in the cold. It's not that simple getting a third person every single day. Uh, And I don't understand why the state has given up on the concept of cracking down on violations. 35% of the people going east on 66 currently during HOV requirements are violating it. 35%. That's a lot of capacity. Why wouldn't you look at that first? Yet we know, and I'm sure you agree, 66 is broken. Something has to be done. Heading into D.C. in the morning, the backups can go five to seven miles. There's a larger issue here. The state's argument is it needs toll revenue to invest in multimodal options for commuters in that quarter, which includes Route 50 as well. I'm sure uh, Secretary Lane means what he says, but I have to be honest, I haven't seen specific proposals that would be funded by specific revenue projections. Uh, should we go forward with this very transformative plan that I fear deeply with the best of intentions could really upend commuting patterns for a lot of my citizens and those of my colleagues throughout that quarter. We're talking about a 38-mile stretch here. This is, a, this is the most profound transformation of an existing transportation corridor in the history of Virginia. We have never told an existing facility, pure and simple. If you look at hot lanes on the Beltway, remember those are additive. We added those as a new choice you don't ever have to use. This would be different. 
That was transportation reporter Martin DeCaro talking with Congressman Jerry Connolly. Now, as for what the Virginia Department of Transportation has to say about all this, Martin has also talked with state officials who argue I-66 tolls are necessary to help cover the cost of better rail, bus, and bike options for commuters. You can hear and read more about the debate on our website, metroconnection.org. I-66, Tyson's Corner, the Capitol Beltway. For many people, these features are part of what distinguish Fairfax County, which makes sense for a place that's seen more construction lately than just about anywhere in the country. But Fairfax isn't just about economic development and expansion. No, it also has natural open spaces and citizens who bristle when development encroaches. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson has more on the fight to preserve natural resources in Fairfax County. Sprightly, energetic, and soft-spoken, Chris Unger was made for exploring the woods. So what we're on right now, this is what he called the Appalachian Trail-style footpath. Unger ducks under low-hanging vines and branches like a deer, and every 10 or 20 yards, something gets him excited. This time, he's jazzed about running into a spiderweb spanning our path. So what's nice about that is that means that we're pretty much the first people to go down this trail today or in the last few hours. Uh, I always like that feeling. When you run into spiderwebs, you're like, booyah, (laughs) we're off the path. Unger is the primary conservator of the nonprofit environmental advocacy group Friends of Akatink Creek. Right now, he's taking one of his regular patrols of the stream. Along these forested footpaths, especially amidst all this spring growth, it's easy to forget that for much of its length, Akatink Creek runs parallel and practically adjacent to the Capitol Beltway. That fact is part of why, for a while, as much as he loves this place, Unger stayed away. For a long time, it was hard for me to come back to Akatink Creek. In my mind, it was just this this place of, of destruction and and like battle. Unger and the friends of Akatink Creek were in the thick of a fight to protect the waterway during the construction of the 495 hot lanes. Today, he stops at one of the innumerable unnamed tributaries that feed into the Akatink. The water is clear now, but during construction, Unger recalls, it was anything but. Then you could follow the path of the mud, like this vengeful anaconda down towards the creek. In many ways, this was an ideal site because you could show very directly the impacts on the creek. After many meetings, petitions, and days spent documenting the sediment runoff, Unger says Virginia's Department of Transportation took steps to mitigate the effects on the waterway. The law hasn't really kept up with with what's needed in these areas, so... And I do still see a strong contrast between the erosion and sediment control practices in Maryland versus what I see in Virginia. The comparison between Maryland and Virginia, and more specifically the comparison between Maryland's Montgomery County and Virginia's Fairfax, is something you hear a lot from Unger and many others. These are, after all, the most populous counties in the two states. But Stella Koch, an Audubon naturalist and the longtime chair of Fairfax's Environmental Quality Advisory Council, says comparing Montgomery and Fairfax often isn't fair. Well, I think one of the things that's hard for a lot of people to understand is they play by a very different set of rules. Unlike Maryland, Virginia is a Dillon rule state. 
That means counties have limited authority to challenge decisions made by state agencies such as VDOT. Thus, when a major road project like the Hot Lanes expansion starts gaining momentum, it's often a challenge for county officials to get the state to make adjustments. Sharon Bulova is the chairman of Fairfax's Board of Supervisors, a position she's held since 2009. That can be frustrating. It can be frustrating to uh, constituents who can't understand, you know, why we can't just fix it. And it can be frustrated to us in local government uh, because we can't just fix it. Given the constraints, Bulova and co. contend that Fairfax is doing remarkably well protecting the county's natural environment. Four years ago, the county implemented a stormwater fee to help pay for things such as stream restoration. The fee raised more than $56 million this past year. The county also now has detailed watershed management plans for 30 different waterways. That covers all of the land in the county. Back in the Akatink watershed, Ted Welch and Philip Latassa prepare to take a closer look at the health of Wakefield Run, another small offshoot of the creek. They're taking account of the types of tiny aquatic creatures they can find in the water. Latassa has to stir them out of their hiding places by disturbing the rocks that make up the stream bed. He does this by shimmying across the stream in his wading boots. It's called the stream dance. Philip is better at it than I am because his balance is better. Welch and Latassa work as Chris Unger looks on. All three are members of the Friends of Akatink Creek. Finding a wide variety of tiny snails and aquatic insects would be a sign of good water quality. Welch's hopes aren't high. Here, my expectations are that we're going to find probably five or six species if we're lucky. Sure enough, they find even fewer than that, though Welch concedes they may just have chosen a bad spot for finding the macroinvertebrates that matter. But just a stone's throw from the beltway, these guys are enjoying the natural world, even as they worry about the adverse effects of continued growth in the county. Anything we can do to prevent further pollution is desirable. So I'm going to be looking for parts of streams getting healthier, but I'm not going to hold my breath. As for Chris Unger, his regular patrols of the Akatank have resumed. And even as the effects of development are more and more apparent, this pocket of Fairfax retains remarkable beauty. I feel better, I guess, being able to look at this as, as an area of disturbance that still is strong. You know, these plants won't stop growing until some very powerful force stops them, and that's much more likely to be nature than us. But Unger's peace on the banks of the Akatink may be short-lived. Another major highway that runs through Fairfax, I-66, appears to be on the brink of expansion. I-66, like the Beltway, touches the Akatink watershed, and that means another battle could be on the horizon. I'm Jonathan Wilson. We're going to devote the final part of today's Fairfax County show to play. We can go over to Waverly Swing and let her ride. Do you want to go to Wavy Swing? Yeah? Let's walk. We're in northeastern Fairfax County, just off Georgetown Pike at Clemmy Jauntry Park. On this sunny Friday afternoon, the McNeils are visiting the colorful spot. Parents Shannon and Matt and their kids, Waverly, age 11, and Oliver, age 8. Here, I'll take him. Come here, bud. We featured the McNeils on the show a few years back. Waverly and Oliver have a rare genetic disorder known as Sanfilippo syndrome, or MPS3. It's degenerative, so kids will develop to a certain point before regressing, both physically and cognitively. Oliver isn't verbal, but he's still walking. 
Waverly's in a wheelchair. But that doesn't mean she can't still play. See, Clemmie Jontry Park is said to be Virginia's first large-scale playground designed for kids with and without disabilities to play side by side. Yeah, this playground's pretty incredible in that way. Census data show about 4% of Virginia's children have disabilities. In nearby Maryland, it's 5%, and in Washington, D.C., it's more than 8 So for these youngsters, the rainbow-colored flooring of the park is rubberized, ideal for rolling wheelchairs and cushioning falls. The jungle gyms have both steps and ramps. The control panels on the metal helicopters and planes are low enough for kids with wheelchairs to access. And that swing Matt, Shannon, Waverly, and Oliver are making their way toward? This is pretty cool. I don't know of another place that has something like this. It's called a Liberty Swing and is specially designed for kids in wheelchairs. So not just a handicapped swing where we have to transfer her out. Here we can roll her chair right into the swing, put her brakes on and allow her to swing in the comfort of her chair, so it's pretty awesome. The McNeils are among the 200,000 visitors Clemmie Jontry has attracted each year since opening in 2006. The park was the vision of Adele Leibowitz, widow of Mortimer Leibowitz. Washingtonians may remember him as the founder of Morton's department stores. Mrs. Leibowitz passed away just after Thanksgiving at the age of 98. Her goal was to make it to 100, but... She did well in uh, preserving this place. As Fairfax County Park Authority Project Manager Mark Holstein explains, Mrs. Leibowitz donated her family's property to the Park Authority in the year 2000 with some stipulations. She required that we develop a picnic shelter. Plus an accessible carousel. And an accessible playground. It was an unusual gift at the time, Holstein says. Nothing of that size and scope existed in Virginia, though Mrs. Leibowitz had been impressed and inspired by Potomac, Maryland's Hadley Park. Which uh, has a similar intent, but um, a smaller design. And whose landscape architects eventually came on board to develop Clemmy Jauntry. But before we go on, a brief explanation of that name, Clemmy Jauntry. Mrs. Leibowitz took it from certain letters in her children's names. Carolyn, C-L, Emily, E-M-Y, John, J-O-N, and Petrina, T-R-I, Clemmy Jontry. But here's the thing, not one of those four children has a disability. And that was really the catalyst for why she did this. She wanted to make sure there was opportunity for everyone. Fairfax County Park Authority's Judy Peterson says the park was an extension of the philosophy the Leibowitzes held at Morton's for more than 60 years. You know, they were known then as refusing to uh, sort of conform to some of the racial practices of the day, being activists in the community, and making sure that their stores were, at that time, integrated and available to everybody. To ensure Clemmie Jontry Park will always be available to everybody, Mrs. Leibowitz required her land to be a park in perpetuity. So even as Fairfax County gets more developed and crowded, Clemmie Jontry will always be there. And in the next few years, as Mark Holstein explains, the park will offer even more features. See, Mrs. Leibowitz established a life estate at Clemmie Jontry. Which simply means that she gets to stay on the property until she decides to leave the property or she passed away. So when it comes to the 10-room house she'd been living in and the surrounding gardens, all of which have been separated from the playground by a fence. The park authority now has the ability to go ahead and develop the acreage that's there. The next step, Holstein says, is to add another much-needed parking lot and potentially start renting out the house and gardens for events. Whether it's a, a community event, a wedding or birthday parties or whatever, but all that has yet to be worked out since the life estate uh, recently terminated.
For now, the Fairfax County Park Authority, the Park Foundation, the citizen-led Friends of Clemmy Jauntry, and other supporters, they all continue to maintain the park to make sure Mrs. Leibowitz's legacy continues. Hence, last year's million-dollar repair of the playground's rubberized rainbow surface and the additional million needed in the next decade, now that most of the equipment is nearing its half-life. But all of these improvements, all this upkeep, it means the world to locals like the McNeil family. And, as Matt and Shannon point out, to visitors from beyond the D.C. region, too. Yeah, we used to bring a lot of -of out-of-town guests here, too. Well, and whenever we have any families who have kids with with San Filippo who come into town, we always bring them here. Most of them in their area, they don't have anything like it. So it's a real treat for all of the kids to be able to play together. In fact, Shannon says in 2016, she's thinking of throwing a party at Clemmie Jauntry for International MPS Awareness Day. It falls on May 15th, so she has about a year to work out the details. Curious to see what that Liberty Swing looks like? We have photos of Clemmie Jauntry Park on our website, metroconnection.org. And you can learn more about MPS and International MPS Awareness Day on our website, too. Again, metroconnection.org. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Michael Pope, Lauren Landau, and Martin DeCaro, along with reporters John Hines and Natalie Villacorda. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to past shows, subscribe to our weekly podcast. You can find a link on our website, metroconnection.org, or check us out on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll devote the hour to D.C. music. We'll be teaming up with Bandwidth, WAMU's website dedicated to exploring music in and around Washington and checking out everything from hip-hop to hardcore to dance tunes inspired by Ethiopia. We'll explore the genres and meet the artists that help make our local music scene one of a kind. He knows how to conjure this sort of melancholy, forlorn mood backed by very rhythmic elements. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.